special one for you today. It's on like Donkey Kong, bitch. Um, the smears against Jank Uger have been put on steroids and human growth hormone. And uh, we're not going to stand for it. We're going to fight back. So it really is, <clears throat> it really is stunning to see it unfold in real time. As somebody said to me, instead of, uh, you know, you could think the media is terrible and you could think it's, uh, you know, they're bad and it's largely based on groupthink and being part of the club. But what if it's actually a step further and what if they're malicious on purpose and they're lying smear merchants and they know that they're lying smear merchants and they simply don't care? That is definitely a possibility and uh, you're going to be amazed at this first story that we talk about. We're fighting back, though, and our attempt to fight back already went kind of viral on Twitter, and now we're going to make it an even bigger thing when this hits YouTube. So, um, But there's also a lot more to talk about. We'll get into why it is that Jeremy Corbyn lost, UK Labor Party lost in the elections. We'll get into um, a healthcare story that uh, unfortunately is all too common in America and it's, of course, somebody who's getting ripped off in the most absurd and obscene ways. And then we have um, Bernie getting in the trenches, going after Pete uh, Buttigieg. And Mayor Pete better buckle up, because I got three stories pummeling him into the ground today. And Donald Trump is pulling another classic Trumpian move. And we'll see what uh, what 
he actually ends up doing when the time comes, but he's threatening something in regards to the debates. And also later on in the show, we have some new results from studies of magic mushrooms. And surprise, surprise, the results are overwhelmingly positive. So without further ado, let's get started here. And uh, we'll do that with the Jank Uger situation. Here we go. The New York Times wrote what can only be described as a hit piece on Jank Uger. And um, I could take the time to go through the entire thing here and just rip it apart line by line. But I decided instead of doing that, I just want to focus in on one example that shows you how, in all seriousness, this is credibility ruining for them. Because anybody, and I mean anybody, who stumbles across this fact check that I'm about to do, they're going to go, oh, so now I have to take everything with a grain of salt. Because this is so above and beyond wrong that it appears malicious And it appears like they don't care that they're getting something incredibly, mind-numbingly, stupefyingly wrong. So since Cenk is now running for Congress in the 25th Congressional District in California, you're seeing traditional media kind of coalesce uh, to bury him in the ground. But in all seriousness, they messed up because they're massively overreaching. So here's how they described an interview that Jenk did with David Duke. This is their description in the article. Take a look at this. Figures, including David Duke, in one clip that circulated on Twitter, Mr. Duke ends an interview by saying, I am not what you call a racist, to which Mr. Uger replies, no, of course not. They're making the claim very clearly that Cenk Uger is agreeing with David Duke when David Duke says, I'm not a racist. So Cenk is in agreement that, quote, no, of course not, David uh, David Duke isn't a racist. Of course he's not a racist. That's the impression that they're leaving with everybody. That's not up in the air. That's not open to interpretation. That's what they're trying to impress upon you. Now, what you're about to see here is the interview from which that quote came. And you tell me whether or not they're portraying it accurately. ...to the banks. Now, anybody who thinks that this Ben Shalom Bernanke is a very strong Jewish supporter of Israel, is a strong supporter of Jewish... Anybody who thinks he's not going to favor his own fellow Jewish bankers in giving out that money, like Goldman Sachs, these other bankers... No, no, but you misunderstand the problem entirely. That's why you've spent a life headed in the wrong direction. Oh, yeah. yeah, Now, look, look, look. So the Federal Reserve has tremendous issues. By the way, you know uh, there's two co-sponsors of the bill to audit the Fed. One was Ron Paul on the Republican side. The other one was the guy who actually started the whole process, Alan Grayson, who's a Democrat, who also happens to be Jewish. So why does this Jewish conspiracy want to undermine itself? Mm. Let me say something. Goldman Sachs. No, but you know who was the head of Goldman Sachs, who then led the entire bailout of what you say is Jewish bankers? Yeah, I know who was out of it, Blank Fine. No, 
mentioned cable news. You mentioned CNN. You happen to have named one Jewish executive that happens to be in charge now, although there was non-Jewish executives throughout. There was a non-Jewish owner throughout. When I was at MSNBC, still today, hold on, let me finish. When I was at MSNBC, uh, the CEO was Phil Griffin. I believe he's Irish. I'm not sure, though. Uh, Chris Matthews was their largest host. I think he's Irish. Lawrence O'Donnell uh, does a program there. I believe he's Irish. Uh, Dylan Radigan was there. I believe he's Irish. So is, can I say, oh, the Irish, they have rigged the media in America. First, first off, you're, you're the one cherry-picking. You can't take a couple of examples. No, you can't take the Irish examples, only the Jewish The truth is, so even if I were to concede your point, which I most certainly do not, that right. the Jews are, in, uh, are somehow running things or that they are uh, in charge all the time of these media companies. But no. if I were to, hold on, hold on, if I were, for Christ's sake, let me answer, ask the question. If I were to concede that point, okay, so they did a great job, they rose up, they were successful, they should be applauded, whereas you didn't, so you're a loser. So what's the difference? They're the winners, well, you're the loser. I'm not a loser. I'm a Why don't you go run the studio? I've been, I've been, I've Why didn't you run the studio? I served eight years in public office. I went and got Why didn't you run CNN? Of that. 
Which is it? I'll ask you guys. I'd be fascinated to see a poll on this. Is this reporter massively lazy or a malicious, dishonest, nefarious liar doing a smear job on purpose? If you look at the Gallup tracking numbers on the media, did you know only 41% of the American people have trust in the media? 41%. There are some polls that have Donald Trump's approval rating above the approval rating of the media. The media is less liked than Donald Trump. You know what percentage has a, quote, great deal of trust in the media? You're going to love this one. 13% of the American people have a great deal of trust in the media. That's as low, or actually lower, than the approval rating of Congress. You wonder why that is. It's not, see, they want to make you believe oh, it's only the crazy far right-wing people who dislike the media. It's only the crazy far right-wing people who have this conspiracy that, like, the media is bad. What the hell do you call this that just happened to Jank Huger? What do you call this? All right, now here's where you get involved, guys, because we're not going to stand for this. So yesterday, I tweeted the correction. I gave her quote, and then I tweeted the correction and said, this is unconscionable. You need to retract and apologize immediately. I haven't heard back. You know how many views the video has, the, the clip of Jenk in the interview aggressively going after David Duke and disagreeing with him at every turn? You know how many views that video has right now? Over 900,000 views. This thing blew up on political Twitter. She's tagged in it multiple times. She has seen it, and she hasn't said anything in response yet. Well, that's weird. See, if it was just, if you were just lazy and made a mistake and smeared this guy viciously by saying he agrees with David Duke, well, then wouldn't you, if you saw that, wouldn't you be like, oh my goodness, I made a terrible mistake. I have to fix this. Weird, you haven't said anything yet. So uh, how about we're specific in our response here? I'm going to leave her Twitter information in this video. You'll see it written on the screen now tweeted her. Now, don't, don't be vicious. You know, don't say anything that's harassment by any stretch of the imagination. Keep it polite, but let her know you have to fix this. You must retract and apologize. You have to do it. It's unacceptable to leave it as is. So her name is Jenny Medina. Again, I'll leave it on the screen. Now, also, I'll put her email. Email her at the New York Times. Again, same rules apply. Uh, don't be vicious. Don't be a bad person. Don't harass. Don't say or do anything that they could then potentially even 1% turn around and try to ban you or me for sharing their information. Don't do any of that. Be respectful, but let them know. You have to retract and you have to apologize. And by the way, I got multiple tweets last night because, again, over 900,000 people saw the video and they know the New York Times is dead wrong on this where people are saying, that's it. That was the last straw. I'm canceling my subscription to the New York Times. If you want to cancel your subscription to the New York Times over this, by all means, go right ahead. Why wouldn't you? You see how terrible they are at their job. Are you kidding me? If I ever got something that wrong, I would immediately come out and be like, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. And I'm, I, I was wrong. And I'm happy to correct myself. Um, so that's the reporter. Now we're going to take it a step further. We're going to raise the stakes. Because, again, I think she already saw it and didn't want to say anything, change anything, because... It's looking likely that she's just dishonest. 
and this is just a smear job. And who's she getting her marching orders from, by the way? I'm very curious on that front. Is she doing this all on her own? Hmm, I don't know about that. I, I would think maybe there are higher-ups who are like letting her know, like, this is kind of what we want you to do. Could it be Cenk Uger's opponent in, uh, in her, his California race? Could be. Now, I don't know for sure. I have no evidence of that, but it's possible. Could it be higher-ups in Democratic leadership in Congress? We know who those names are. Could be. Again, I don't know for sure. Could it be her editors? It's possible it's her editors, but in the case that it's not her editors and the editors are not dishonest, I want you to tweet at them too. So here's the, um, the Twitter information of the editors. So you have at Patrick Healy, New York Times, and you have at Corbett, New York Times. Uh, tweet at them. Again, same rules. Don't be vicious. Don't do anything that could get you banned or me banned. Be, but be respectful, but let him know you must retract and apologize. This is unacceptable. This is obviously untrue. Now, also, you know, you could do it. You could respond to them and send them the tweet that I originally tweeted because it shows the video of how aggressive he is against David Duke. So, you know, you could tag that tweet when you tweet them, or you could just tweet them without it. I think it helps if you send the video to them because then it's they're stone cold caught. It's not like they think there's any wiggle room for interpretation. Like, oh, no, we think you're wrong, and we think we actually portrayed it accurately. Well, no, if you have the video there of the interview, which I tweeted, again, I'll retweet it uh, as soon as I'm done with the show here. Um, but if you tag that with it, what are they going to do? They're caught stone dead. Again, guys, over 900,000 people have seen the video. People all over Twitter, every ideological stripe you could think of are going, oh, so you're just lying about them. That's what you're doing. You're just lying. So we're going we're gonna to find out, guys, and that's why I'm doing this. Th- that's exactly why I'm doing this, because we're going to find out if they retract and apologize. If they retract and apologize. Okay, then the reporter was just lazy, which is bad enough. <coughs> it, it, that's really bad. I'm not giving a pass for that. They retract and apologize. Okay, though, we're, you're just lazy. It happened. But if they don't retract and apologize, oh, oh. You're dishonest, and you're smearing on purpose. And I have a bad feeling about what the intentions were. I do, and I'll tell you why. Because ever since Cenk Uger announced he was running for Congress, every single article about him, and I'm not kidding about this, every single article calls him sexist, racist, misogynist, every bad name in the book. There's not a single one that mentions that he was a co-founder of Justice Democrats, which helped get seven amazing Justice Democrats elected in Washington, D.C., including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They don't mention that. They also don't mention that he's a founder or co-founder, I'm not sure which one, of Wolfpack. Wolfpack is the movement to try to get money out of politics, get an amendment to get money out of politics. And by the way, lest you say, oh my God, that, one hasn't, that one's been a failure. Actually, no, because the resolution has passed through a a number of states. They're still not at the point yet where we can actually have a constitutional convention. They still have work to do, no doubt. But many states have actually passed the resolution. So don't sleep on Wolfpack. That's actually been very successful compared to other groups in that same category of trying to get money out of politics. So his life's work has been trying to get money out of politics, uh, founding or co-founding a group that is an attempt to move the Democratic Party to the left and building a giant progressive behemoth network. Now, 
again, don't get me wrong. Do I have disagreements with Jake Uger? Of course I do. Of course I do. You know, we could spar on the details of impeachment, and we would totally disagree on that. We could massively, and we have, we had a debate about it. We could massively disagree and debate about Russiagate, for sure. I think he should have endorsed Bernie earlier. Again, there are a million things I could see here and say, I think he's wrong about this, or I think he could needs tweaking here, whatever it might be. But isn't it weird when he announces his run for Congress, there's not a single article, forget treating him fairly, that's even being objective, just barely objective when it comes to him. They don't talk about his life's work. They don't talk about the successes. He's portrayed across the board as an unhinged, sexist, racist lunatic. People are digging up old uh, you know, quotes from his old episodes, t- massively taking them out of context to try to make him look like an insane person. Which, by the way, we knew that was going to happen. We knew that was going to happen. But you expect that from the far right. You expect that from some unscrupulous corporate Democrats. You do not expect that from the media. The media has to have higher standards, and we're going to make them have higher standards. So again, I gave you all the Twitter information. I gave you the email of the reporter. Do your thing. And, and, and this is a really important point. Every single time they do a verified smear against them, verified, where we could just debunk it like that, donate more to Jenks' campaign. And I'll, let me tell you something, guys. I happen to know that his opponents, after they unleashed this massive smear campaign, highly organized oppo research effort from corporate Democrats, they thought, oh, that's it. That's it. We knocked them out. It's over. It's over. He got up off the mat, though. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. They, they seriously thought, like, oh, well, he's going to curl into the fetal position and drop out. Do you know nothing about Jank Uger? Of course he's not going to do that. This only lights the fire under him more. Now he wants to get elected even more. As they're attacking him over past politically incorrect statements, he's going on and on about Medicare for all. His opponents just took money from health insurance companies, just did it. They're trying to say he's disqualified because of things he said. He said back to them, oh, I'm disqualified. You just took money from health insurance companies at a time when 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't get basic health care. You're disqualified. You're disqualified. You take corporate money. You're the corrupt one. You're disqualified. You represent the rot in this system. You represent business as usual status quo politics, which will change nothing. And that's exactly why they're going after him. They know he'll change stuff. They need to make an example out of him, guys. They need to make an example. They need to let him know, no, 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 no. If you're somebody who's an, a genuine outsider... If you're somebody who's really going to represent these left-wing positions, represent the voters, if you're going to go all in on small-dollar donors, no, we're going to make an example of you. Because if Jank Uger can win this race, anybody can win any race if they're fighting for the people and they're raising with small-dollar donations. They cannot control him. And what this shows is they're absolutely terrified. They're terrified he could win which is why they're all in with all the smears up front. And by the way, they'll keep rolling out. I guarantee you they'll keep rolling out. They'll hit them. Again, they'll clip out stuff, old stuff that's out of context and weird. And you'll be like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. Oh, wait, the full context is that? All right, it's not as bad as I thought it was. 
That's always what's going to happen because that's all they have is PC outrage. That's all they have is gross accusations about sexism and racism to a guy who co-founded or actually founded the biggest progressive online news network. That's going to be your strategy. That's going to be your strategy. I mean, when it's so easy to debunk, it's ridiculous. So there's a reason why they're doing this. They're scared of him, and they cannot defeat him if the argument is Medicare for all. They cannot defeat him if the argument is free college or a living wage or ending the wars. They can't defeat him on those things. They can't defeat him on getting money out of politics, which is his main issue is ending the corruption. They can't defeat him on that. So what do they do? Smears all day long. And now they have the paper of record doing their dirty work. Well, we're going to correct the record here because this is unacceptable. And we're going to... We're going to make them do a retraction. Again, be nice about it, but we're going to make them do a retraction because this is unacceptable. And they've ruined all their credibility with this utter nonsense. So let's see. Are they just massively lazy and terrible at their job, or are they liars? We're going to find out. Okay. Next. The UK elections. We have the results in from the UK election, the final results. This, of course, happened a few days back, but this is the first show we've done since we got the results. Um, and it is, it's not pretty. It is not pretty for the left. So BBC News breaks this down here. You have the conservatives uh, have 365 seats in parliament. That's plus 47. Plus 47. That's a massive. The Labor Party, 203 seats. They lost 59. That's a huge defeat, guys. Then you have SNP, I think Scottish, Scottish National Party, plus 13. And then you have the Lib Dems with uh, 11 um, Lib Dems there are, are like a centrist party. Um, they lost the seat. So, well, why did they lose? Well, first, before I weigh in on it, let's go to the man himself who was leading the Labor Party, Jeremy Corbyn. Now, be- actually, before we hear from him, let's just get all the facts out there. In 2017, he led the Labor Party to historic wins. They had the biggest gains they've had in decades, if I remember correctly. So I remember covering it at the time. So Labor Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, was massively successful in the 2017 elections. What happened? Well, let's see what Corbyn thinks, and then I'll weigh in. Obviously very sad at the result we've achieved, and very sad at those colleagues that uh, lost their seats in the election and very sad for many people in this country who will now have a government that is uh, continuing policies of austerity, and many of the poorest communities, I think, suffer very badly from the economic strategy that I suspect the Prime Minister will take forward. But also, I have pride in our manifesto that we put forward, and all the policies we put forward, which actually had huge public support, on issues of universal credit, the green industrial revolution, and investment for the future. But this election was taken over, ultimately, by Brexit, and we as a party represent people who both voted remain and leave. And my whole strategy was to reach out 
beyond the Brexit divide to try and bring people together uh, because ultimately the country has to come together. So what went wrong? Well, those in leave areas in some numbers voted for Brexit or Conservative candidates, which meant that we lost a number of seats and we didn't make the gains that I'd hoped we could have done, particularly in the uh, Midlands and Yorkshire in the north. So that's his interpretation of why the Labour Party lost. Um, is he correct? Well, I think he's at least partly correct. So when it comes to Brexit, the Labour Party took the position previously of, we got to honor the vote. The British people voted. They said, we want to do Brexit. We want to leave the European Union. And so what am I going to do? I believe in democracy. I believe in the voice of the people. So it is what it is. We got to honor it. This time around, that was not their position. He changed his position. And his position was, uh, let's have another referendum. Let's have another referendum. Now, again, he said that was his attempt to, like, appease both Remainers who don't want to leave the EU and people who are for Brexit. That was his attempt to, like, marry them and say, like, oh, yeah, I kind of agree with both of you. Like, we'll have one more vote, and if that vote says leave, then we'll leave, but if it doesn't, then we'll stay. You don't really get to press the button and do a do-over on democracy. Even if you massively disagree with the conclusion, it is what it is. I mean, it's sort of a matter of principle that, well, if the people say it, what are we going to do? You can't just override it. That's authoritarian by definition. So now, by the way, that's not, that's not me weighing in on the substance of remain or leave. It's not. Because I, I've actually seen really convincing arguments on both sides of that. And I don't know how I would have voted if I was in the U.K. in Brexit. Um, you have the people who want to remain accuse all the people who want to leave of like it's all they're all racist and it's all over um you know immigration but that's not really the only thing it's over you have many people who are on the left in the labor party like george galloway for example who's for leave as well so you know you had people on the right who were for leave or, or excuse me yeah leave but you also have people on the left who were for leave and that was that was the conundrum that Jeremy Corbyn found himself in, in is that you had people on the right were to some extent unified on the issue, or at least more so than the Labor Party, whereas people in the Labor Party were split. And so he was trying to represent both camps as much as possible. And that definitely hurt him. And you could tell there he gave the specifics, too, as to, oh, we calculated that in this area we would win more as a result of our position, and maybe this area we would lose some, but we'd make up for it. So they had the calculations, but they were just wrong. And there were many former labor strongholds in rural areas that flipped to conservatives. And their main reason was Brexit. And what you have to understand is the conservatives at least make head fakes and at least make overtures to populist ideas in the UK. Their conservatives are a hell of a lot different than our conservatives. That's not me saying I would agree with their conservatives, because I don't. But they, at the very least, they have to make head fakes, and they have to be like, oh, yeah, no, of course, I support the NHS. Of course I do. What are you, crazy? I want to increase spending to the NHS. So um, when you mix in the united opposition in favor of Brexit leaving the EU, you mix that in with 
populist head fakes, yeah, you could see how labor loses that election. So Brexit is probably the main issue here. And by the way, now it should be any person who controls the Labor Party from here on out. It is what it is, man. You got to say we're pro-Brexit. Now we would negotiate a Brexit deal on our terms, and our terms would be better for the workers than the terms of the Conservatives. So, I mean, that, that's the position I think the Labor Party should take now. We're going to honor Brexit, and we want to negotiate a really good deal on our terms, which is good for working people uh, in the UK. That's what I think uh, the Labor Party should do from here on out. But there's also one other reason why Jeremy Corbyn lost, which is the relentless smear campaign against them. I mean, we can't talk about the election without talking about that as well. And, you know, we've covered it on this show. That's how big of a story it is, is that we – I don't even cover a lot of U.K. politics. I don't. I do it every now and then. But, like, that story was so big, and it got so absurd that I had to cover it on this show, where every day, oh, my God, anti-Semite, 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 anti-Semite. Every day they call him an anti-Semite. And it's like, well, hold on now. Everybody on the right always pretends. Like, who, us, bro? Listen, we don't play identity politics. We don't do smears based on flimsy evidence, okay? That's what, like, the left wing does. And then the second they think they could come up with some smear campaign that will be effective, anti-Semite, 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 anti-Semite. Did I mention anti-Semite? Anti-Semite. So, yeah, when you call them that day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out, and, of course, in the weeks leading up to the election, what do they do? Uh, McCarthyite smears. Trying to time to Russia. It, like, it's the same freaking playbook everywhere, man. It's the same playbook they use against the left. It's insane. Um, so, it's stuck. And listen, I have to say, man, there is a lesson for Bernie Sanders to take out of this. I didn't hear much of a fight back from Corbyn and his team. I didn't. I don't know why. I think maybe they probably calculated um, they're not going to land anyway, these smears. So just leave them be. But you got to aggressively fight back. And I hate to make the comparison, but I make it because it's true. Who's the politician in modern American history who most directly takes on the media? Trump. And it works. I just told you, guys, 41%, this is a Gallup tracking poll, 41% of the country trusts the media. 41%! That's not high at all! 41%! What percentage um, trusts them a, quote, great deal? 13%. Donald Trump is more popular than the media. So no wonder he takes them on like crazy and calls them fake, new, fake news and calls everything a witch hunt and a hoax. Because he knows he has more, he's more trusted than them. Now, you know, if everybody has this default interpretation, this perception of the media as like lying smear merchant losers, yeah, go after them. Now, I don't know if the situation is exactly the same in the UK. I would imagine it's not because their people tend to ask better questions and all that stuff, as we've seen on the show before with Andrew Neal and others. But you, have to, you can't just take it laying down. You have to fight back. You have to fight back aggressively. And, yes, after you fight back, then you drop it. You set the record straight, then you drop it. You don't dwell on something. Fight it back, fight back, drop it, and then move on. But I didn't sense much of that. It was all day long, anti-Semite, 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 Smyria, Marxist, uh, Russian, this and that. And it... it <laughs> I hope this doesn't stick. Oh, my God. Don't No, don't let that happen. So between Brexit and the relentless smears and the fact that the conservatives have to do populist head fakes, yeah, labor got 
their booties handed to them on a platter. So it is what it is. Lick your wounds for a day or two and move on. And now, and listen, when it comes to the manifesto, and Corbin goes on to make this point too. And actually, we, I think we covered the manifesto on this show because it was so good. Jimmy Dore covered it on his show because it was so good. It was amazing. The, the manifesto was superb. So the only thing I would change moving forward is you fight back against the media when they smear you and you change your Brexit position to tough cookies. The people voted were pro-Brexit end of conversation. And we want to negotiate a Brexit deal on our terms that's a good deal for workers. That's it. Those are the only things I would change. And I think that that would change the outcome. Um, but what do I know? I'm just a loudmouth YouTuber. Okay. Let me take a break. And then when we come back, I'm going to get into a healthcare story that's going to blow your mind. And Bernie, Bernie was asked a question at a campaign event about Pete Buttigieg. And he went in skis. You're not going to want to miss that one. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
Beach. I'm back, baby. All right, so 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 so. Ugh. All right, Medicare for all time, and then Pete Buttigieg. Better get ready because we're coming at him, bro. We are coming at Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Oh, let me set this up. Let me set this next one up. Actually, I don't even know what number story we're on. Okay, never mind. I found it. (laughs) I'm a mess. I am a mess. All right, here we go. Here's a healthcare story that unfortunately is far too common in America. So you don't hear um, much about this from the media at all. Media ignores stories like this because to them, it's not even really a story. It's called Tuesday. This happened. We could go on one road in America that has 20 houses, and probably three of those people have a story exactly like this. But it's noteworthy. And this person who spoke up did something that's actually pretty courageous. So let me show you here. This is Lori, L-O-R-I. Her Twitter handle is at iCounterSpin. And it says the following. I'm in tears. My husband is so sick. Our debt costs more than we make each month. And here's the best, cheapest plan available to me to keep my husband alive this coming year. There's no way I can afford this. No way. And then she shows the details of um, the plan that's available, available to her, the best plan that's available to her, by the way. And look, you see a monthly premium of $1,549.91, a deductible of $13,000, and an out-of-pocket maximum of $16,300. Let me ask you a question. How many people, what percentage of people you know have $16,300 laying around? My generation has, like, no savings. The millennial generation has, like, nothing in savings. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 78%, that's basically 8 out of 10, live paycheck to paycheck. I'm speechless. This is the best plan that they offer. It's $18,600 a year for the premium uh, and with a deductible of $13,000. Guys, I know that this is just Tuesday in America, but it shouldn't be. (laughs) So this is a story that deserves attention. And this is a story that's only going to get attention Uh, from people like you and from shows like mine covering it. It's not going to, CNN is not going to talk about this. MSNBC is not going to talk about this. Fox News is not going to talk about this. The Nightly News is not going to talk about this. Just so you know, they view poverty as like a, a personal failing, like an individual failing. Like, oh, you're just not of sufficiently moral character. You didn't work hard enough. And if you respond to them, well, no, I actually work a full time job. Like, oh, we'll get a better one. 
you see their perception of the system? It's that the system is pristine, and you need to try to fit yourself into that system, and if you can't do it in a way that's beneficial to you, that's your problem. Our perception is the opposite. Our perception is the system should be crafted to meet the needs of the people. If the system is above us and all these people are struggling to find their little spot in that system, well, doesn't that system just suck because it's not doing its job? Shouldn't the whole point of any system be to meet the needs of the people in an efficient and effective way? It's like, again, they view it as a personal failing. Oh, you're poor? Oh, you don't have good health care? What would you do wrong? Oh, that's not the way that makes sense. Guys, other developed countries don't have to deal with this. We spent $7 trillion in Iraq when all is said and done by the year 2053. That's when you add the interest on as well. $7 trillion. And we can't afford Medicare for all? Nobody batted an eyelash on the cost of the Iraq war. Nobody even talked about the cost of the Iraq war. They just said, it's a moral necessity. We have to do it. Now, of course, it wasn't a moral necessity. But it shows you that if they think something is a moral necessity, then they just do it. So why are they not doing that for health care? Because they don't care. They have good health care. They don't care that you don't. Oh, my God. $7 trillion in Iraq, at least $2 trillion in Afghanistan, $14 trillion bailout of Wall Street. This is where we're squandering everything. But regular people who will go bankrupt from health care bills, they get nothing. They get nothing. 500,000 bankruptcies every year from health care bills. 30,000 to 45,000 deaths from lack of health care every year. And this isn't treated like the moral emergency that is. That's what this is, guys. This is a moral emergency. By the way, show this story, what I just laid out for you, the facts about the only plan you can get, the cheapest plan. Show this to an Australian. Show it to a Canadian. Show it to somebody in the U.K. Show it to somebody in France. They'll be mortified. And we know. We just saw a viral video. We just covered a viral video of exactly that. People in the U.K. are like, what? It costs that much to have a baby? They just, they're like, I, it doesn't compute. They thought, oh, what, how much does it cost when an ambulance picks you up? The person's like, how much does it cost for an ambulance? That's free. They're like, no, it's actually $2,500. they are like, what? <laughs> what? Why? Why? What? They think we're morons. Actually, that's not fair. Maybe some of them think we're morons. Some of them think we're victims of a terrible system that's screwing all of us. But either way, they're like, this is wild. So this is just one story. I could come out on this show every single day and give you a thousand stories comparable to this. Matter of fact, put your disastrous healthcare story in the video description box. Um, and perhaps I'll tweet this segment and I'll say, everybody, read the comments because there's a lot of nightmare stories in the video description box with our healthcare system. I've, I've told mine a few times, um, but my dad um, was, he was experiencing back pain, and he didn't have insurance. So he decided, let me go the cheaper route, and I'm going to go to a chiropractor. And in his mind, you know, he thought chiropractor equals straight-up doctor. Um, so he's like, I'll go the cheaper road. I'll go to the chiropractor and get it fixed there. 
So the chiropractor does this, you know, fancy schmancy back cracking on my dad and tells him after every session, hey, man, keep coming back. We'll get this, we'll get this kink knocked out. Just keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. The back pain kept getting worse and worse and worse. My dad kept going back to the chiropractor. Eventually, he couldn't take the pain anymore, and one night he had to go to the emergency room. When he went to the emergency room, they did an x-ray and found that that back pain that he was experiencing for over a year was cancer. It started in his lungs, and it metastasized to his spine. It was stage four cancer, and he needed immediate surgery. Um, again, he didn't have health care, which is why he hesitated so long to go to the doctor in the first place um, and why he went to the cheaper, the cheaper direction, which is a chiropractor, which he was uneducated about. Again, he didn't know that that's not like a doctor doctor. He didn't know that it's like a glorified backcracker. Um, so he had the surgery done, and then he died like two weeks later. It was too late. It had spread too far. The cancer had spread too far. And, um, you know, if we had a Medicare for All system, and if my dad could have just gone to the actual doctor, I'm just guessing here, but I'm pretty sure he would have done it, and I'm pretty sure they would have caught the cancer earlier. Um, so it's the fact that he didn't have health care and the fact that he didn't have the money he wanted to go save by going to the chiropractor. All that added up, and my dad ended up passing away at the age of 56 when I was just 23 years old. This was back in 2011. So that's my healthcare story in this country. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I didn't even connect the dots until much later on. It was actually my brother-in-law who was like, you do know your dad is one of the people in that statistic that I always bring up, the thirty to 45,000 deaths from not having healthcare. I was like, oh, my God, he's right. That is kind of what that is. Again, we don't know. I can't. I don't have a crystal ball. Don't mention anything about the rising. <laughs> but, um, like, I think it's likely he would have went to the normal doctor if he could have just gone and it would have been free. So, anyway, that was that's my terrible uh, healthcare story. I also have other stories of, like, um, there, there being a lapse in my insurance because they didn't they they messed up and they weren't uh, deducting the amount that they were supposed to deduct and there was a whole mess up and because every and I hate this so much every year you have to like re up your insurance like what what is it I have to every year you want me to pick from like thirteen different terrible plans like oh please pick as if like I want to go shopping for health insurance no if I'm sick I want help that's the end of the conversation I want to go through oh what does this one cover does this one cover my spleen <laughs> Like, what? Uh, stop. I don't care about any of that. Why? Every year i got to go back? And even if you have an employer and you get your insurance through your employer, they have to do it every year. And they have to run it through you. Oh, do you want? Do you like this plan? you want the same plan? Just get rid of the middleman. Just get rid of that unnecessary for-profit middleman, which complicates everything, gives insane paperwork to doctors. Just get rid of it. But um, I forgot where I was going with that, but it doesn't matter. All the information is out there. That's my uh, terrible healthcare story. I've told it before on the show. Um, and, you know, now you see another one here. Who knows what's going to end up happening with this poor woman? Who knows? You know, I wish we could all tell her everything's going to be all right. But oftentimes it's not in this system. So we need to get a Medicare for all system. Listen, people love to slam purity tests. Perhaps if we all had a purity test and we enforced it, my father would be alive and the 45,000 others 
who died because they didn't have health care would be alive. So maybe sometimes purity tests are a good thing. Okay, next. Bernie Sanders went at Pete. Went at Mayor Petey, boy. Bernie Sanders was asked a question at a campaign event about Pete Buttigieg's Medicare for All. I'm sorry, Medicare for All, who want it. That's uh, Pete's idea. And um, Bernard proceeded to break it down. Could you please talk um, about why the message Medicare for all who want it isn't going to work? <laughs> it's not going to work for two reasons. Number one, and most importantly, it leaves in place a health care system designed to make huge profits for the insurance companies and the drug companies. It doesn't touch that. And we ultimately can never have a cost-effective health care system when the drug companies and the insurance companies are making huge profits and determining the priorities of our health care system. The insurance companies and the drug companies are not particularly interested in disease prevention. they got other goals as well. They're not particularly interested in making sure we have hospitals and doctors in rural areas. They don't make enough money doing that. So the only way we are going to provide health care for all is finally do what presidents have been talking about for well over 100 years. Think about what Teddy Roosevelt said, what FDR said, what Harry Truman said, what JFK said, what Lyndon Johnson said, what Obama said. Health care has got to be available to all of our people. And you cannot do that in an affordable way unless you have the courage to finally take on the drug companies, and the insurance companies. Second of all, if you go that route, what you'll end up with a two-tier Medicare system. The healthy and the wealthy will go into private insurance. The poor and the sick will go into Medicare, and that will be a disaster for Medicare in terms of the costs. What we need is one system which guarantees health care to all of our people, and the only way we do that is in my view, do Medicare for all. Anytime we have an open and honest debate about this, the left is not going to lose. Because there's, for a long time, the propaganda was able to keep this idea under wraps. But now the propaganda is falling flat. It's not convincing enough. Because fundamentally, people realize this is just a discussion about priorities. That's all it is. That's it. So you have corporatists in both parties who say, no, my priority is to spend $7 trillion on the war in Iraq. My priority is to spend $2 trillion on the war in Afghanistan. By the way, both of those wars lied into and lied throughout. We relied across the board. Uh, you know, corporatists say $14 trillion on a bailout, that's, that's what I prioritize a big bank bailout to the tune of $14 trillion. 
Well, um, you know, as long as the people are educated on these terrible decisions that the politicians are making, they're going to look at it and be like, what are you doing? We're wasting all of our money on that. We could just take that money and we could pay for health care for everybody. Did you guys know, we've brought this fact up before, I think it was The Intercept who originally pointed this out, and credit to them for it. But in 2017, the military budget had at least an $80 billion uh, increase from the previous year. Stop and think about that. And a lot of Democrats voted for it, too. So they scream about how Donald Trump's a wannabe dictator and he's a Manchurian candidate uh, who's Putin's puppet. And then they give him $80 billion more, an increase in the military budget from the previous year. Again, it's not that $80 billion is the entire military budget. No, it was like $780 billion, an $80 billion increase from the year before. You know what it would cost for free college for the entire country? $60 billion. You could have free college with $20 billion left over. And again, not a single person said, how are you going to pay for that military budget? How are you going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Nobody said it. Nobody said it. Elizabeth Warren voted for that military budget. Elizabeth Warren. But anytime anybody ever brings up free college or Medicare for all, immediately, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Here's the real question, guys. How are you going to pay for our current health care system? Because according to a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, a very detailed study on Medicare for all, it would save us $5 trillion over a 10-year period. $5 trillion over a 10-year period. Why? Because you're eliminating the unnecessary for-profit middleman. Of course you're going to save money. So funny enough, one of the main reasons Bernie brings up there as to why we've got to go Medicare for all and not Medicare for all who wants it. It's because the price is because Medicare for all is a massively efficient system. So ironically enough, some of the main attacks against Medicare for all just flip the reality on its head and they get it exactly wrong. And the reason they're giving is actually a reason to support Medicare for all, not a reason to oppose it. So whenever they're like, oh, the cost, the cost, the cost, the cost, the cost, the cost, the price, the price, the price, the price, the price, uh, it, it costs less. It costs less. Now, that's where they go, yeah, we're going to raise taxes on the middle class, but what are they not telling you? They're not telling you that Medicare for All eliminates premiums, copays, and deductibles. And they're also not telling you that premiums, copays, and deductibles are a private tax. You have to pay it, so it's a tax. It's just a tax to a private corporation. What they're saying is eliminate all the private taxes, raise the public taxes, but you'll still save money. If you're paying $10,000, in private taxes, you'll pay 8000 in public taxes. So even though we're raising public taxes, you're still saving money. Guys, this isn't like, it's like trying to explain the most simple concepts. And, you know, when people actually understand, they go, oh, they have the light bulb moment, but they've been lied to for so long, repeatedly, over and over, incessantly, just, and the media refuses to talk about this in an honest way. Every single debate, all of the difficult questions are to the candidates who support Medicare for all. They never, ever, ever ask a question to a candidate who doesn't support Medicare for All and say, well, hold on, 30 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have health care. The only way you cover them all, free at the point of service, is Medicare for All. How many are you comfortable with dying every year under your system? There are 500,000 medical bankruptcies. The only way you eliminate that is Medicare for All. 
How many are you comfortable with going bankrupt over medical bills? They never ask these questions because, again, they have a bias. The media has a bias as well. Um, so he also points out there that any, plan, any proposal from any of the candidates that keeps the for-profit health insurance companies in control and hands them you know, the structure of the system, says you're in the driver's seat, that's a terrible system. And it also sets up a two-tier system, which we do not want. We want every single person to have that gold plan that Congress has. That's the idea. And if you disagree with that, okay, ask yourself, who are you comfortable giving a bronze plan to? I'm not comfortable giving anybody a bronze plan. You want to know why? The bronze plans suck. They suck. Nobody deserves that. Everybody deserves everything covered free at the point of service. So, guys, this isn't hard what we're talking about here. We're talking about very basic stuff. And that's why a lot of these candidates like Mayor Pete are so frustrating. Because they're simply put, they're gaslighters. I think he knows that he's full of it. He does. But he's going to be more of a status quo manager than a real change candidate. And this is Bernie doing a great job pointing that out. Okay, next. I got more on Mayor Pete. I'm going to bust this dude up. Uh, and you're going to enjoy it. Mayor Pete was asked about his big money fundraising, and he gives a classic Mayor Pete disingenuous response. It's not just protesters. Senator Warren said in a speech this week in New Hampshire that she has a rival in the race who, quote, offers top donors regular phone calls and special access when a candidate brags about how beholden he feels to a group of wealthy investors our democracy is in serious trouble. That comment was widely seen as a reference to you. Is that a fair critique? What's your response? You know, the thing about these purity tests is the people oh. issuing them can't even meet them, right? Um, if, uh, if doing traditional fundraisers disqualifies you from running for president, then I guess neither one of us would be here. Let's have a serious conversation about where this country is headed. And hitting somebody with a process purity test when we're in the debate of our lifetimes about what it's going to take to move this country forward in very specific policy terms, like who has a better vision on how to make sure we move to universal health care in this country, and in broader terms about what kind of path is needed to create that sense of belonging and replace that sense of exclusion that is defining American life. This deserves to be at the center of the debate, and that's where I'm going to keep my focus. The people who complain about purity tests are the people who can't pass them. Now, the question was fundamentally about corruption and bribery, and his response was, ugh, enough with the purity test. Wanting your politicians to not be corrupt, wanting to stop bribery, is not a purity test. It's common sense. 
It's like saying you want your pilot to have passed flight school. It's like thing number one on the list for accepting a politician, accepting somebody's expertise in a given field. And listen, Mayor Pete used to support Medicare for All, or at least he claimed to. He was all over Twitter being Smuggy McSmuggington, responding to everybody who claimed he doesn't support Medicare for All. And he would be like, excuse you, uh, I do support Medicare for All. And they were like, really? You haven't given us any indication of that. Well, I, Mayor Pete, hereby do declare that henceforth I do support Medicare for All. Incredibly smug, incredibly condescending, and lying, by the way. But here's the other part of the story. Why do you... Why is it that he went from Medicare for All to Medicare for All Who Wanted? Even you could say, okay, just in rhetoric, he went from Medicare for All to Medicare for All Who Wanted. Why? Why? How did that happen? Well, this is the part that he doesn't want you to know, is that Mayor Pete has taken a grand total of $97,000 in big money from big pharmaceutical companies and for-profit health insurance companies. And this includes, you know, CEOs, vice presidents, other executives. This is what we're talking about here. We're talking about a guy who took $97,000 from the industry and then, wow, he uh, watered down his position massively to keep these people in control of the system. And then when he's asked a direct question about the big money fundraisers, about the corruption, about the bribery, his response is purity test. Okay, I'm going to make this as simple as possible, guys. Mayor Pete is a dishonest hack. He's a dishonest hack. He knows what he's doing. I always, always, always like to default to somebody being wrong as opposed to just malicious. But in the case of Mayor Pete, it's malicious, and he's dishonest. He knows he's taking a lot of money from these people, and he knows he wants to represent them. So he's not a, he's not a change candidate. Again, I call these candidates status quo managers. They're for minor tweaks around the edges while largely keeping business as usual functioning. But that's a problem because business as usual is terrible. Business as usual is failing everybody. Business as usual is leading to 500,000 medical bankruptcies a year. Business as usual is killing 30,000 to 45,000 Americans every single year because they don't have health care. Business as usual is Congress with a 21% approval rating. The system's broken. It's not working for you. And instead of honestly answering a question about the corrupting influence of money in politics and de facto bribery, he says, it's purity test. It's a purity test. That's what this is. So I'll end the segment the same way I started it. The only people who complain about purity tests are the ones who can't pass them. And doesn't that seem crystal clear today? Okay. Next. Final Mayor Pete story. Oh, shoot. I changed graphics, y'all, when I shouldn't have done that. This one is going to frustrate you with Mayor Pete because it shows what he thinks of you. And he thinks of you pretty much what you think he thinks of you. Here we go.
Mayor Pete was asked some decent questions for probably the first time in this race uh, since it began. And this is CBS This Morning. I believe this was last week. And look at how he deals with it. His response to a decent question is to BS everybody and then get really condescending. Watch. of leadership and if you became president you would be the youngest president in history and yet you don't have a majority of young voters in this country according to polls is there a way in which you're out of touch with your own generation no but it is certainly no. the case that often so younger candidates tend to attract more support from older voters but we are building a coalition that's going to draw voters from every part of this country uh now certainly yeah. three and four percent among people under the age of 44 uh, in south carolina uh, almost as bad as minority voters uh, know what he's doing there. He knows what he's doing there. <laughs> he's unbelievable, man. <laughs> he, he really is he's massively unlikable. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm struggling with the young voters, but when it comes to the young voters, I mean, listen, a lot of them like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I liked Bernie Sanders when I was 18 years old. That's him saying, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Young, naive, pie-in-the-sky, silly idealists. They're not realistic about the world. So you grow out of that eventually. That's the argument he's trying to make. (laughs) Uh, The funniest part about this is (laughs) the real reason why young people don't support him is the exact opposite of what he's saying. And what I mean by that is, as a general rule, and obviously it's not perfect, but as a general rule, Younger voters are more uh, in tune, plugged in, online, and they research more. And they know more about the different candidates, and they know more about what they represent. And so younger candidates don't support Mayor Pete because they know more about Mayor Pete, and they don't agree with him. They don't agree with you. Listen, we actually covered the numbers, man. 80%, I believe that exact number is 79% of young voters defined as, I think, under the age of 35. 79% support either Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie's number one, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, and Andrew Yang. Isn't that funny? The four candidates who inarguably actually stand for something are the candidates that get the youth support. What does that say? If I ask a random person on the street, a random Mayor Pete supporter on the street, why is Mayor Pete running for president? Does anybody think they could give a direct answer? They'd have to tap dance all around it like Mayor Pete himself is known to do. But if you ask, go ask a Yang supporter why they support Yang, there's a very high likelihood their response will be universal basic income. And if it's not that, it'll be something else which is pretty direct and pretty straightforward. Go ask a Tulsi supporter. They'll say, I want to end the regime change wars. 
Go ask a Bernie Sanders supporter. They will probably say Medicare for all and fighting income inequality. Like, those are probably his two biggest things. Um, go ask a Warren supporter. Now, obviously, I have strong criticisms of Warren. I mean, I have criticisms of Yang and Tulsi and Bernie, too, obviously to different degrees. But in the case of Warren, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that her big thing is Wall Street regulation and the wealth tax. Those are like her biggest things. So if you ask a Warren supporter, that one may be a little more mixed. But in general, I think from at least five out of ten, you'll get a pretty decent policy answer. All the other candidates, they don't even really know why they're running. They can't even really tell you why they're running. They're running because they're malignant narcissists, and they want the name and the power associated with being president. I mean, Mayor Pete, uh, by the way, he was in on the anti-Bernie Sanders meeting when, when establishment Democrats were plotting how to take down Bernie. He was in those meetings. It included Pelosi, Schumer, and many others. So it's like the meeting of the cabal of corporatists, and he was there. Mayor from South Bend, Indiana. It's a miracle he's gotten this far, but his whole thing is crumbling in front of us. Remember the story we covered last week? Man, what an insufferable story that was about how he was asked why he's not releasing his, um, his big money bundlers and, and you know who his funders are. And they're like, can't, can't you release them? You're the, pre- you're the candidate. Can't you just demand they be releasing? He's like, yes. They're like, okay, well, will you tell us why you're not releasing them? He's like, no. <laughs> Sometimes he has these moments. When he's pissed off, he has these moments of being too honest. And when he's too honest, it just shows him to be like a rank corporate tool. Um, But, yeah, that was a moment right there where he couldn't contain his smugness. The smugness just oozes out of Mayor Pete. I liked Bernie, too, when I was 18 years old. Well, then you should go back to being 18. (laughs) I know that's not possible. I'm just saying. Because uh, Bernie actually pretty clearly stands for a philosophy of social democracy, whereas you are a neoliberal centrist corporatist hack who's, again, a status quo manager, which we've had so many of them and not much changes. All right, next. 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 Donald Trump is pulling a classic Trumpian move here, and he's generating headlines by threatening to skip the next debate, the general election debate. That's interesting. President Trump has been discussing with his campaign advisors whether or not to participate in the general election debates in 2020. Two people close to the situation told the New York Times. According to, to the sources, Trump doesn't trust the Commission on Presidential Debates, the nonprofit organization that puts on the debates. Specifically, Trump is apprehensive of who will be chosen by the organization to moderate the debates, the Times reports. Trump's campaign reportedly declined to comment on what their plan was for the, for the debates at a State of the Race campaign briefing in Arlington, Virginia. During the 2016 campaign, the president persistently complained about his debates with former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, claiming that he was put at a disadvantage. Um, There's a lot to say about this. First of all, just the question of, is he actually going to do it? Well, there's speculation that the reason he's saying he wants to do none is almost like a negotiation position where they will ultimately agree on just doing one debate instead of three. 
I don't know if he's capable of doing that like long-term thinking, that like chess move kind of thinking. Um, I think it's very possible he actually doesn't want to do any debates. But will he actually skip them? I don't know because it's tough for Trump to give up the opportunity to be in front of any camera anywhere. If there's one thing he loves in this world, it's uh, being in front of adoring crowds and being in front of cameras. So uh, I think he will probably end up doing the debates. But this is so interesting because I think there's a decent argument to be made that the fact that mainstream media does not like Trump helps him. I really do believe that because it now it's possible for the media to be tough on Trump and hurt him in the process of being tough. But in order to do that, they would need to use good arguments against him. But, you know, my perception of it is, and you guys know because I cover this all the time on the show, I think that mainstream media is tough on Trump in all the wrong ways, and it ends up helping him. Because then when he fires back and he screams like fake news and witch hunt and it's all a hoax, I think people are like, yeah, finally, somebody's standing up to these charlatan con men in the media, and we don't care that it comes from an imperfect source, Trump. And, you know, I spoke about the Gallup poll earlier in the show. Um, The Gallup tracking poll on the media, trust in media is at 41%, which in most polls is lower than Donald Trump right now. So the media is more disliked than Trump. But the even more shocking number is the number of people, the percentage of people that have a, quote, great deal of trust in the media, it's only 13%. 13. That's fewer people that have a great deal of trust in media than people who like Congress. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen it, met anybody in person who's like, oh, yeah, Congress is great. <laughs> Usually it's about 20 21% their approval rating. But so it's funny because... Trump, like, is complaining about it and says he might skip it. But, like, no, the fact that the media is massively biased against you in dumb ways helps you. It helps you. Because then when you fire back and you're indignant and you're mad, people are loving that. They're tuning in and they're like, yeah, go get them. So, and then the final point is, he's such an anomaly because he pretends, like, oh, my, me? I'm a tough macho man, bro. That's what I am. And then he does the most ridiculous Biznit shit. <laughs> I mean, this is just weak. This is so weak. Like, I don't think you're going to be fair. Who cares even if they're not fair? Go after them. It's a debate. You can respond, and you'll get way more speaking time than the moderator will. So go, 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 go after them. And usually he does it, but the fact that he's like, I don't know. If I want to. And he did this in 2016 when he skipped one debate because Megyn Kelly was the moderator. And he was like, Megyn Kelly treats me so unfairly. I'm not going. And then he didn't go. And all of his supporters simultaneously were like, oh, my God, he's such an alpha male. He's so macho. And everybody else in the world was like, that's super weak. That's the weakest thing I've ever seen in my life. It doesn't get any weaker than that. Tapping out because you think you're going to get asked some tough questions? What is that? So he has a weird way of spinning, like, all of his massive flaws into perceived positives among his his group of supporters who will never abandon him. But I find that one particularly funny because it's so obvious that it's weak and not strong, but they portray it as strong and they think it's strong, which is just beyond silly.
Okay. Next. The media has gone all in on smearing Bernie Sanders now as an anti-Semite. This is in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn's loss. So let's take a look at the Washington Examiner here. They say, Senator Bernie Sanders may be ethnically Jewish, but Tiana I, whoever that is, says his campaign is rapidly turning out to be the most anti-Semitic in decades. That's one example. Washington Times, or, or Washington Examiner, excuse me, is not really a fringe outlet. Washington Times, I think you could argue, probably is. Um, Noah Rothman, another guy who's big in media circles, says the following. Campaign reporters, please ask Bernie when you get the chance about his apparent tolerance, apparent, excuse me, tolerance, appearance, not even a word, apparent. <laughs> appearance is a word, not apparent. Apparent tolerance for the occasionally anti-Semitic indulgences of his surrogates and campaign staff. It's important. I'm not kidding when I say I started seeing these articles pop up the day after Corbin's loss. Now, why did Corbin lose? That's a long conversation. We covered it earlier in the show. But the gist of it is um, the untenable Brexit position from Corbin and the Labor Party. They tried to have it both ways and got it neither way. Um, but also the media's relentless smear campaign against them. All day, every day, anti-Semite, 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 labor's anti-Semitism problem, labor, labor's anti-Semitism problem, so on and so forth. And I think the lesson that a lot of these media pundits in the U.S. took away from Corbyn's massive defeat and labor's massive defeat is, oh, so when we called him an anti-Semite nonstop, maybe that actually worked. Maybe we were able to take him down with the smear campaign. So now they're trying that on Bernie Sanders. Now, there is one pretty large problem with that, and they even mention it here, but still go on to make the criticism, but he's Jewish. Now, I guess one can make the argument it's possible to be both Jewish and anti-Semitic in the same way it's possible for somebody to, like, be black and hate black people, you know, guys like Alan Keyes, for example, among others. Um, so it's possible. Does it make it less likely? It probably makes it less likely that if you're part of that group that it's less likely that you'll hate that group. But um, the other giant problem with this, though, and this is one that's not brought up, is that there are many members, multiple members of Bernie's family, particularly on his father's side. They died in the Holocaust. Bernie has direct family members who died in the Holocaust. And they're still going with the, his campaign is anti-Semitic line. Guys, this, this goes on to prove a point that I've been making on this show for a long time, which is there is no, no appeasing smear merchant. Because the nature of a smear is that it's not tied to anything logical, rational, reasonable, connected to reality. The whole point is to unfairly go after you. That's why it's called a smear. And so there's no, like, playing patty cakes with those people or trying to get them to soften 
what they're going to say. No, because they're dishonest actors. So this gets to, you know, a, a bigger point, which I'd love for the Bernie campaign to, to listen to, which is you need to take all of these smears and use them to your advantage. I think one of the problems with Corbyn and the Labor Party is I didn't really see much of them aggressively fighting back against the smears. I think perhaps their default assumption was like, this isn't, this is so absurd, it's not going to land. But you didn't really respond, you didn't rebut it aggressively, and then I guess to some extent it did stick, along with the other reasons why you lost. But in the case of Bernie, I mean, listen, he's genuinely a nice person. Like, that's the thing about Bernie Sanders, is he's like actually a mild-mannered person and a nice person. And he doesn't want to, like, pick fights with people and whatnot. But what happens when they pick a fight with you and they're ruthlessly and viciously smearing you and they start to define the narrative? Um, I, I always like the idea of a scorched earth strategy against the media. Like I said, this idea that they're untouchable, oh, please, as long as you're crystal clear that you deeply believe in the First Amendment and you would never take any, you know, legal action against them as president, as commander-in-chief, um, like, yeah, then go to town. Do your thing. Only 41% of the country trust the media. Only 13% have a great deal of trust in the media. Like, people hate them. They like you a lot more. They trust you a lot more. So if you respond and you seek and destroy, and then as soon as you set the record straight, you move on. That's the, that's the way, that's the strategy that works, guys. If you dwell on it, you pump life into the story and you give it more news cycles. You don't want that. But what you do want to do is quickly, aggressively, intelligently rebut it, and then you move on. Swat it aside. This is absolute nonsense. This is BS. My dad's family died in the Holocaust. How dare you? How dare you accuse me and my campaign of being anti-Semitic? We're a campaign that stands for justice across the board. We're against racism. We're against anti-Semitism. We're against bigotry. When we say we want to take away the subsidies from Israel, it's because they're violating the human rights of Palestinians. Why do you have an anti-Palestinian bias? Why do you hate Palestinians? You go on the offense, swat it out the way, and then you move on. But I really hope that there is a lesson learned um, from the Bernie campaign that you can't just sit back and let everybody else you know, have a field day. And this goes against the other candidates, too. Don't let them define you and don't let them get away with defining themselves as they see fit. I, what I would do if I was him is literally learn exact numbers when it comes to corruption of the other candidates. So, for example, Mayor Pete keeps pushing Medicare for all. Who want it? And, oh, wow, look at that. He took $97,000 from big pharma and for-profit health insurance companies. Seems to me maybe he flipped his position from Medicare for all to Medicare for all who want it because of the money. Say that. Say that. Go on the debate stage and say, Mayor Pete is corrupt. He accepted bribes, and he changed his position. He used to say it was for Medicare for All in 2018. 2018, that's last year. Then he flipped his position. Now he says Medicare for All who want it. And would you look at that, $97,000 from, uh, you know, big farm and for-profit health insurance companies. That looks to me like 97,000 reasons why he changed his mind. If you, if you make it specific and a crisp to the point criticism, they have, no, they have no hope. They have no hope. Bernie will destroy them because Bernie actually is a much more pure candidate in terms of his message, in terms of his beliefs, in terms of how he's conducted himself throughout his career, in terms of how he fundraises. So let everybody know that. Don't 
let people, you know, have to figure it out on their own and research it and go into the weeds and the nooks and crannies to get all this information. You need to tell them it. And that goes for, you know, responding to media smears and going after the candidates in a clear way. All right, next. We have some positive results coming out of new clinical trials. This is in Newsweek. Magic mushroom treatment for depression one step closer after psilocybin passes safety test. So this is interesting. This was the largest controlled study of psilocybin, and it was done at King's College in London. It included 89 volunteers who were about age 35. And... What they found is it causes no serious problems, uh, including to all these participants' cognition and their emotional functions. And the only things that happened when they took the mushrooms, and it was a six-hour period, they were there with like a therapist or you know somebody akin to that, some sort of counselor. They took the mushrooms, they were there for six hours, and of course, naturally, the side effects were of the mushrooms, hallucinations, changes in mood, um, feelings of euphoria, tiredness, and shifts in how they perceive time. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Um, and I've heard people who've taken these kind of psychedelics describe things that make no sense, but they would make sense, I guess, if you took it. Like, for example, they say you could smell sound or you could hear smells. Like weird wires crossing in your senses and that's one of the effects of these you know kinds of substances but again hallucinations changes to mood feelings of euphoria tiredness shifts in how they perceive time but they said really no negative effects i mean i guess technically if you had a bad trip could have been the case but i guess of these 89 volunteers nobody really had a bad trip um and they said no withdrawal symptoms either so it's not addictive in that sense now that's another thing that people who take these substances have been telling us for a long time is that they're actually not addictive. They're not like an upper drug or a downer drug, which you can get addicted to, but hallucinogenics or psychedelics are like, you know, they uh, change your consciousness in a really interesting way. And then you don't feel an urge to like keep going back and taking them. Um, but there's been studies that are now saying that particularly when it comes to depression, anxiety, PTSD in some instances, they're experimenting, and a lot of these treatments are working, whether it's magic mushrooms, LSD, uh, MDMA is another one, which is normally viewed as like a club drug, but in the right setting, in a clinical setting with the right dose, it, it could be very positive. Um, ayahuasca is another one. Even, uh, even peyote and ibogaine. So peyote was the, the Native American uh, drug of choice, if I remember correctly. And I, I like how I say, if I remember correctly, as if I was around back in the Native American, like, heyday. Um, I, I mean, from reading that, of course. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating that now there's this, um, this psychedelic renaissance where 
for a long time, there was a lot of, you know, suppression of the idea that these drugs can have any benefit at all. But at face value, we all should have known that's absurd. Why? Guys, we use derivatives of cocaine for medical treatment. You know, like when you go to the dentist and they've got to numb an area, that's a derivative of cocaine that numbs the area for you. Um, they, it, morphine is basically heroin. So if you get into a massive car crash and your leg is broken, you snap your femur and you go to the hospital, the first thing they do is give you morphine. Why? Because it dulls the pain. So there's always, like, if, if we could find a, a clinical use, and that makes perfect sense, that nobody even bats an eyelash today, for a drug like heroin, you're telling me there's no clinical use for psychedelic substances? Of course there are. Of course there are. Just so everybody knows. You know, because we've all been, the propaganda you've pushed in your head your whole life when you're a kid. I, I had the D.A.R.E. classes, and they say, like, drugs equal bad. End of conversation. And it's like, well, no, there's a reason why throughout history people have used them, because they work. <laughs> That's why they use them. People wouldn't be attracted to them in the first place if they didn't work. It's like saying, well, caffeine is bad. Really? Well, then why do millions of Americans every morning have caffeine, like, right away? Because it works. <laughs> That's why they do it. So, of course it works. Now, uh, is there such thing as abuse? Absolutely. Everybody knows there's such thing as abuse and addiction, and it should be treated as a medical issue, not as, you know, a, a moral failing or whatever, a criminal issue. That's insane. Um, but, yeah, they do work, and they do have purposes. And just like morphine dulls pain, um, it's certainly possible, and a lot of these studies are showing, that when it comes to PTSD, anxiety, depression, other deep psychological issues, psychedelic treatment might be the way to go. There's been massive positive results where people snap, even with addiction. Isn't that an interesting one? Even with addiction, if you're addicted to, say, cigarettes, or if you're an alcoholic, a lot of people report, and I don't know if there's been a study on this one in particular, but there is anecdotal evidence on this front, that Ibogaine. People have taken Ibogaine, and it just snaps that... Um, that addiction that you had. Imagine being a smoker for like over a decade and then you have this one substance and you wake up the next day and you're like, I don't even want that. I don't even want a cigarette. All of this stuff should be looked into. Listen, the societal taboo that we've had o over drugs is like this old school puritanistic, I was going to say valedictorian era, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Victorian era, there you go, nonsense. Like that's what this is. It's puritanism uh, on steroids. And as long as we know there are medical uses for a lot of these things, study it, look into it, because all the other drugs you take are also drugs, and it's putting a substance into your body. If you can get positive results, it should be studied, and if they work, they should be implemented, they should be allowed, particularly even guys for, like, treatment-resistant depression, which is a massive problem, and they say some of these that's exactly what some of these psychedelic drugs are being looked into for, is for treatment-resistant depression. People who've tried every antidepressant pill under the sun and it doesn't work, and they've tried diet and exercise and everything you could possibly think of, and they're still depressed. Well, if you have other options that could possibly work, for, to have some you know, closed-minded approach where you say, no, we're not even going to allow uh, you know, ourselves to look into that, how stupid is that? And that's the way the law, unfortunately, works in the U.S. right now with many of these substances. Yeah, we have the different schedules, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3. And, like, 
if something's on the list of, of I think Schedule 1 is the worst, and it's like, why do you have a lot of the substances on that list that you have on that list? I don't, marijuana is a Schedule 1 substance on, when it comes to the federal government. That's how they've categorized it. That's insane, especially since it's not that, but also because a lot of states have legalized it, and some states have legalized it for um, medicinal use. Some have recreational, some have medicinal. But it's like, it, it works, it works. Go talk to some veterans with PTSD. Some of them smoke, and it makes them feel better. So what are we doing here? What are we doing? We need to approach all this stuff in a much more open-minded way because obviously we're not, we never made the decisions we originally made based off the science. That's the important point, guys. It was never like the original decisions to put this on Schedule 1 and this drug on Schedule 2. That was never because we looked at the science and people in white coats and glasses said like, mm, yes, we're doing the right thing here. No. We got to that point through a series of terrible decisions that were influenced by special interest groups who didn't want a competition to their drugs that they were selling, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or alcohol companies or tobacco or whoever it might be. Um, we got there based on bad science. In some cases, guys, literally based on racism, literally, literally based on racism, where previous generations didn't want, um, like, oh, my God, you have these Chinese immigrants who have these opium dens, and the white girls are going in there, and we don't want our precious white girls sleeping with the Chinese men, so ban it, ban the opium. You used to be able to go to the store and get opium, <laughs> literally. You get like a little bottle of, I uh, forget, laudanum, laudanum, however the fuck you say it. Like that was opium. You could just go get it at the store. Um, and when it comes to marijuana, guess what? Mexican immigrants brought it in. And we were like, oh, my God, it must be bad. It makes them crazy. Arrest everybody who does it. It was a way of trying to criminalize that lifestyle because we had deemed that those people were criminal by nature. So it's not like these decisions were made at a, at a time. Oh, yes, we're all looking at the science of it. No, the laws didn't develop like that. So uh, it's time to change them, and it's time to study them even more thoroughly than we are, and we will get to a point where many of them will be legal for medicinal use and others will be legal for recreational use, and that's definitely a good thing. Okay. Next, next, next. Next, 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 next. Where are we going? Okay, a new UN report about how everything is terrible <laughs> and we're all miserable. This is actually a really sad story. Let me get my graphic right and then we're off to the races. And let's see, here we go. A new UN report came out, and it basically verifies that everything around us is collapsing. <laughs> Very uplifting stuff here. So this is NPR tweeting about it. A new UN report argues that many of the street protests popping up around the globe are driven by a growing sense that societies are rigged to favor the powerful 
and trap the masses in low-wage, dead-end lives. Wow, how's that for like a clear and scary wording? So they say, each year, the UNDP looks at human progress around the globe. This year, the authors say that major societal shifts around technology, education, and climate change are creating a new great divergence. Achim Steiner, I'm definitely butchering that name, the UNDP administrator, sums up the problem this way. An increasing number of young people are educated, connected, and stuck with no ladder of choices to move up. Global inequality is now more about disparities in opportunity than disparities in income. What we are seeing is an opening of a new generation of inequalities, particularly centered around the emerging middle classes of societies, Steiner says. What people perhaps 30, 40 years ago were led to believe uh, and often saw around them, Steiner says, was that if you worked hard, you could escape poverty. Yet in many countries today, he says, upward mobility is simply not occurring anymore. So they go on to say, these lines are something else, man. They go on to say, the Human Development Report 2019 makes the case that many of the street protests popping up around the globe are driven by a growing sense that societies are rigged to favor the powerful and trap the masses in low-wage, dead-end lives. And in the 21st century, not only are there still huge global inequities, but people are far more aware of them. So that's what I like to call a perfect storm. Because you have no way out, no hope, no future. You know that hard work isn't rewarded by escaping poverty. You know the rules are rigged against you and for corrupt elites. And at the same time now, they cannot repress that knowledge and put you in your own isolated box anymore. Now you have solidarity growing not just within your individual countries, respectively, but we're now interconnected. That's all around the world, and everybody knows this stuff is happening. It's like when the Arab Spring was happening, everybody around the world was following it in real time as it was happening, because a lot of the organization was going on, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, like, we're so connected now around the globe that we're all looking around and we're all going, oh, the system and all of our respective systems are BS. We got to do something about this. And then, boom, you see all these protests. Now, obviously, you get into the minutiae, you get into the details and the specifics of each individual protest, and you will find, um, you know, things that are unique to each individual circumstance, of course. But the broad general trend this UN report um, is talking about here, and it's scary. It's scary to see because people have no hope. They're not climbing any ladder. They don't see a future, and now we all know that's the case, and we're all connected. So what needs to be done? I mean, listen, man, what, how is this even a question? There's only like a thousand things that can be done that would help fix these problems. And that really goes to show you a lot about the ruling elites, doesn't it? Is that they don't want to give an inch. You know, we've spoken about it in the context of the U.S., but they would rather have capital, would rather have Donald Trump 
than mild social democracy advocate Bernie Sanders. What does that tell you about the nature of capital? It tells you they'd rather take fascism over social democracy. They would lean, if you had a case of somebody who even probably self-identified as that, they would take that guy over a social democrat. Because a social democrat would entail a strong degree of redistribution. And with redistribution comes a redistribution of power. And they do not want to give up any money and any power. And so if that means that everybody else needs to suffer, if that means that the streets are going to be filled with people and there's massive unrest, not my problem. I'm in a gated community and I got security guards. So what can actually be done to address a lot of these problems? Well, again, you'd have to go into each individual place to see the nature of their specific problems. Uh, Iraq has had protests. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Iran has had protests. There's a variety of reasons for that. Um, Lebanon, Chile, uh, France with the Yellow Vest protest. It's happening, like, so many places it's happening. And, you know, from the U.S. perspective, I mean, first and foremost, the thing that appears universal for all of these uh, protests is a very simple thing of you have to uncorrupt the institutions. You have to uncorrupt the institutions the political institutions, the economic institutions, so that they're more responsive to the people. Because if people feel like the institutions are responsive to them, there's no need to go out in the streets. There's no need to spend a tremendous amount of time trying to bring about change and trying to fight for certain goals. The goals are already met. There's no reason to protest to try to achieve those goals. So if you uncorrupt the institutions and make them more responsive to the people, that alone can quell a lot of the unrest for sure. And then the other thing is, and this is something we should probably talk about more, we often talk about free college on the show, but another thing is free trade school needs to be part of that. So you can choose to go to college, you can choose to go to trade school. But I feel like trade school is really important. I know Germany has a system like that where you can go to free trade school. And the reason why that's just as important, if not more important, is that it's like college for a specific thing or like an internship for a specific thing where you learn a trade. And when you learn a trade, you find a future and you find meaning because you found, oh, this is my little niche. This is, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to master this field, whatever that field may be. So trade school, I think, is a massively important thing, and it's a very practical solution. If you have free trade school, it's a practical solution for people where they find meaning in their life, they find purpose in their life. And that's the other thing is that along with all this unrest, it's clear there's a crisis in meaning. When you're stuck and you feel like there's no upward mobility, you feel like there's nowhere for you to go no matter what you do, well, yeah, of course, you're going to have a crisis of meaning. You could face depression. You could face anxiety as a result of all that stuff because you're just existing. You're not, you're not going forward. You're not progressing towards anything, and that's super important for any human being for psychological reasons. You have to be able to do that. So we need institutions that foster that, can foster that personal growth, as opposed to it's doing the opposite right now. It's stunting growth at every turn because there's no place for so many people because the systems are rigged against us. Um, and then the other thing is, and this is super important in my opinion, you should have um, you know, policies implemented around the world to bring about more democratic workplaces around the world. Um, you know, It's not really a radical position, as Noam Chomsky famously says, that the people who work in the factory should own them. It's almost like a common sense position. And for a lot of people, when they talk about socialism, this is all they're talking about. They're not talking about you know, the Soviet Union or Cuba or any version of authoritarianism, they're just talking about a market socialism type system where people who work in the factories own the factories. 
and they democratically vote on decisions the factory makes. That's all they're talking about. Now, me personally, I'm of the belief that you could – I wouldn't ban the traditional hierarchy that we have under a capitalist system where you have a boss and then you have people working underneath. And I wouldn't ban them. The people who work underneath absolutely have rights and should have rights, and there should be strong labor laws to protect them, so on and so forth. There should be regulations. That's all clear. But, yeah, some people just, you know, hey, I want to go clock in and clock out and not think too much and not be directly involved. By all means, that's perfectly fine. So I wouldn't ban the traditional hierarchy, but should we have policies in place that foster um, a movement towards direct democracy? Should we have worker-owned co-ops? Yeah. I think it's, it, we should have a, a higher percentage of the businesses should be worker-owned, in my opinion. And I do think that, again, that would help quell a lot of the unrest because then a lot of people who want to have a direct say have that direct say, have that outlet, feel like they have control over their lives. So I think that would help. And the other thing is, so we're talking about democracy in the workplace for that aspect. The other thing is, I think we should have more direct democracy around the world. Now, let me be clear. When I talk about direct democracy, I'm not saying literally majoritarian rule where you vote on everything. Why? Because, no, there are some things that are rights that are off the table, that are not open to negotiation, that are I'm inflexible on those things. That's the whole point of having a constitution. So when I talk about a direct democracy type system, I'm talking about a constitutional direct democracy where you have certain things that are off the table and not open to majoritarian rule, but then everything outside of the rights, which are off the table, yeah, you should be able to vote on them directly. That's why I've been a big proponent of a direct democracy law in the U.S. at the federal level. Imagine a national direct democracy law. I spoke about this the last time I was on Joe Rogan's podcast, where, again, constitutional issues are off the table, rights are off the table, but imagine if we got to directly vote on a living wage. Imagine if we got to directly vote on free college or ending the wars or legalizing marijuana or freeing nonviolent drug offenders. I mean, we know that the proper position would win. Why? Because as a general rule, even if people might be ignorant of historical facts, because you need to be educated to know that stuff. A lot of people are uneducated, but that doesn't mean they're stupid. There's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. So you could say your average person is ignorant. That's fair. But you can't say they're stupid, because when you give them an option of making a decision that will serve them in a positive way or a negative way, they're not going to pick the thing that screws them. They're not going to pick a system that's rigged against them. They're going to try to fix it which is why, again, I think a lot of this unrest around the globe gets fixed if people have a more direct say in the decisions that impact their lives. And again, this goes back to, to Chomsky. He says, think of freedom as a human tendency. We're, we're always trying to move towards more autonomy, more freedom, more direct control of our lives. And the things that I just called for, I think, are real intelligent ways to go in that direction. Get the corruption out of these systems, uncorrupt the institutions, uh, free trade school, more direct democracy when it comes to politics and voting for your government and voting in the direction you should take your country, and more democracy in the workplace. I think a lot of this stuff will fix a lot of the problems people are facing. But remember, also in the U.S., we have other fights that we're still fighting. We're still, you know, on some basic level stuff in this country, unfortunately. Like, we still have to fight for free health care. <laughs> we still have to fight for super basic thing. So we got a long road ahead, but I think that uh, you wouldn't have a crisis of meaning. You wouldn't have a crisis of 
people trapped in low-wage jobs or a crisis of dead-end lives, as they say, if you address the things in the way that I'm trying to lay out here. Okay, next. This next clip is one of the most ironic ones I've ever seen. Um, you're going to see three things here that are legendary from Eric Trump. And this is, uh, he and his family went on Fox News on Janine Pirro's show. She's one of the biggest uh, Trump defenders, Trump supporters in the media. She doesn't, you know, try to hide that at all. She's gone on some very, you know, notorious, infamous unhinged rants going after Ilhan Omar in, in vicious ways, but that's, you know, I digress from that. That's not really pertinent to the specific story, except to say she's a little off. But, um, I mean, this is just, it's, this clip is so packed full of irony. Let's watch, and then I want to come back and just break it all down. It's not that 
everybody's like, Mwahaha, let me twist my evil mustache and be a Grinch and say, nobody should enjoy Christmas. No, it's that, hey, we have a constitution, and you have to follow the constitution, and you can't put up, like, imagine for a second there were Muslim religious symbols put up in, you know, some government building. How would they react? They'd be like, what are you doing? But when it comes to Christian imagery, you're just like, no, the default is that we get to shove everything that we believe onto everybody else. They don't get to do it to us, we get to do it to them. No, the whole point is the government's just supposed to check out of religion and have nothing to do with it. So, it, you know, if that's what they're referring to about a war on Christmas, no, that's just following the Constitution. Outside of that, this country's massively pro-Christmas. I mean, again, I've told stories, I've gone into the local pharmacy, and I saw Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving. I'm like, what is this? Shouldn't you have, like, a couple pumpkins and a turkey or something? No, they got like a Santa thing and the Rudolph, and I'm like, oh, God, what are we doing here? They're so not a war on Christmas. It is stealing time from other holidays. It is bumping Thanksgiving. That's a famous Jon Stewart joke, which is true. So the first thing is, why do you, just, why do you make stuff up? There's no reason to do this. But there actually is a reason. It's they want to be, we're culture warriors. We're on the front line of saving this country from all that evil. You could say Merry Christmas again. Nobody was ever saying you can't say it. Why do you fight imaginary battles? You're so silly. This is so silly. As if this is like a big important issue that everybody needs to talk about. As, you know, his dad is <laughs> looting the treasury and handing it over to corporations and the rich and um, increasing drone strikes around the globe. And he's out there like, we could say Merry Christmas. Praise up. Oh, God. Okay. So that's the first thing. They make stuff up. The second thing is, as they pretend like they're leading the charge against political correctness, they're embodying everything that's politically correct. Now, again, I said it. I think the baby's adorable. The baby's cute. <laughs> cute little baby. No clue what's going on, looking around or whatnot. But, like, you got your cute baby on your lap. You got a Christmas tree behind one shoulder. You got the freaking, uh, you know, whatever the hell the things are called. I don't know why I'm blanking on it. Was it a nutcracker? Hilarious uh, word to say. But that's over one shoulder. You got the Christmas tree. You got the nutcracker. You got your wife wearing, like, the holiday outfit. You got the, your little baby on, on your lap. You got the lights on the Christmas tree. Every single thing about that image is super-duper squeaky clean and politically correct. And you're out there like you're Marilyn Manson or something, like... <laughs> We're fighting the best. See, there's no more political correctness because we're here. You're the embodiment of everything that's politically correct. Look at that picture. <laughs> it's like the, the only thing that's missing is like a little dog next to you and a white picket fence behind you. And then it's like that is literally the epitome of everything that is politically correct in this world. And, you know, it's, that's the thing that's so frustrating is that you're not – they want to fancy themselves these like edgy outsiders. But no, you're actually not. And oftentimes the people who you go after and who you beat up on, they are the edgy outsiders. They are the truth tellers. So I hate that. That contradiction drives me crazy because you're not what you're claiming you are. And then, um, of course, the final thing is look at the pure propaganda that Fox News does, man. I mean, it really is mind-boggling. They're just flat-out fawning over the president's kids in an embarrassing fashion. I mean, I can't believe they even bother to call themselves a news network anymore. 
they obviously are more in the category of doing like what I do, which is like political commentary, which is fine, but say it. Say you're a pundit. Say you're a political commentator. Don't you dare ever try to say you're news. You're not. You are, as long as the Trump administration is in power, you are clearly state propaganda, and there's no way around it. Okay. Evil turtle Mitch McConnell went on Sean Hannity's show, and um, they spoke about Trump's accomplishments, including getting all these judges uh, approved. And McConnell was positively giddy, not only about getting all these far-right judges approved, but also about railroading the left when it, when it was their turn to appoint judges. So, I I mean, I hope everybody takes notes as they watch this, because there's a lesson in here. But take a look, and then we'll talk about it. What have you learned over this time with the president now, almost three years, that maybe you didn't know? Well, let me tell you what this book is about. This book is about the most long-lasting contribution that Donald Trump and Senate Republicans have made for the country, and that is putting young men and women who are strict constructionists who believe the job of the judge is to follow the law on the courts. We did our 50th circuit court judge just yesterday. Sean, to put that in perspective, Barack Obama did 55 circuit judges in eight years. We've done 50 in three years, and we have at least a year left for sure. We're going to do more. One-fourth of the circuit judges, remember, most cases don't make it to the Supreme Court. Most complex litigation never makes it beyond the circuit courts. This has been the most long-lasting, important contribution the president could make well into the future, far beyond his tenure in office. Uh, So we'll have a judiciary more inclined not to make it up on the fly. You know, President Obama said he wanted to appoint judges who had empathy. Well, you know, that makes great sense if you're the litigant before the judge for whom the judge has empathy. Not so good if you aren't. Let's talk about any of the issues come up. Let's say somebody were to retire at the end of, of this year, uh, leading into the summer. You have been very clear if the president appointed somebody, you would follow through on that nomination. Absolutely. We definitely would do that. And this paperback that we were just talking about, the president's foreword is about judges. My afterword catches up what's happened during the Trump administration on judges because my memoir came out three years ago before the president was elected. What we've done here, the president and I together with this paperback uh, that you've shown on the screen, is to talk about how the judge project came about, how it went forward. If you were to recall, Sean, the most important decision I've made in my entire political career was not to fill the Supreme Court vacancy when Justice Scalia passed away. That was the beginning, and now we've got an exclamation point here after three years that we thought the public would be interested in reading about. And that's why the president and I collaborated on this paperback. So I was shocked that uh, former President Obama left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill those positions. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was in charge of the... of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. I give, I, and I will give you full credit for that. And by the way, take a bow. All right, that was a good life. 
president who was duly elected in 2012. <laughs> this is something, I have a confession over this. I was big on for a long time, always just hypocrisy burning. Saying, oh my God, you said you had this rule and then you violated this rule. Wow, what a hypocrite you are. But I was wrong for focusing on that at all, really. You want to know why? They know, and they just don't care. They don't care. You want to know why? Because it's more about the goals. So I'm hypocrisy burning when I should have been talking about the nature of power and that Mitch McConnell, when he's in the opposition, will do literally anything and everything he possibly can to obstruct any little thing the Democrats want to do. And when he's not in the opposition, he's full steam ahead, all systems go. Any kind of rules he came up with when he was the opposition throw him out. Irrelevant. He's no longer in the opposition. He doesn't care. He just told you right there. Remember, I, I don't know if you guys remember this. Some of you, you know, maybe this was before you followed politics, but um, Merrick Garland was picked by the Obama administration to be a Supreme Court justice. He's a centrist, by the way, super centrist. So it's bad that he picked him in the first place. He should have went left, but he picked this centrist and Mitch McConnell responds by saying, oh, no, no, we don't, I'm sorry, we don't, uh, we don't approve justices, like, within the year of an election. And it might have even been longer than that. I think, he, I think it was an even longer amount of time that they blocked Merrick Garland. He just made it up. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, oh, oh, are you ridiculous? You're saying a year before the election we're going to approve your Supreme Court, Court justice because there's a vacancy now because Scalia died? No, 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 no. We're not doing that. I'm sorry. We're not doing that. No. We're, don't be ridiculous. We're not doing that. Actually, wait. Did Scalia die and that was when they picked Merrick Garland or maybe somebody else? Anyway or somebody might have retired. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Bottom line is, um, they were like, oh, no, 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 we have a rule. A year before the election, we don't put a Supreme Court justice in power. Now, is that actually a rule? No. No, we just made it up. Well, now we're a year before the election, and Sean Hannity asked them, okay, so if somebody retires, or, or you know, Ginsburg passes away, really, is the question that could have been asked. Um, he's like, no, of course I'll approve the judge. What? What about your rule? He knows he did the rule. He doesn't care. He doesn't, because it's not about being consistent in his standards. It's about power, and it's about getting his goals accomplished. So in a weird, ruthless way, you have to give him credit for being a true Kool-Aid-drinking, hardcore, neocon, corporate goon, right-wing goon, and believing in it so much that he'll, he'll do anything to get those things implemented. Now, the Democrats are silly because they actually... They actually try to abide by the rules that they lay out for themselves when they're in the opposition, and, and they want to be more consistent. And it's like, you guys are, you know, you guys brought a water gun to an old-style Western shootout. They got a revolver. You have a super soaker. Do you not see what's going on here? So they got played, man. And they're, the point is he's laughing about it. He's like, yeah, I obstructed every, you know, judge they wanted to appoint, and I'm approving all of Trump's ones. How you like me now? Trump is already at the point where he's like, he's appointed as many as Obama has, and Obama was in office for eight years. Trump's in his third year, and he's already like almost caught Obama. They're roughly about the same with the number of judges that were appointed. It's asymmetrical power. The, the Republicans know how to play politics. And that's the lesson I hope everybody takes away. 
is that there are no rules to this stuff, man. Now, are the institutions going to reel you in from time to time? Of course, and that's good. It's good that we have checks and balances to some extent, and we have institutions. Um, but make your own case. Don't shoot yourself in the kneecaps, and don't likely that left-wing goals went out. And there used to be a time when the left understood this, like FDR. Um, but that's not the case anymore. When the Democratic Party became very centrist, neoliberal, started taking corporate money, when it became the new Democratic Party, 1992 with Bill Clinton, um, now we make concessions to the right all the time, and we're much less likely to get lefty judges in power, and they're very likely to get far right judges in power, and that's what's happening right now. And we're about to see a terrible era on the courts, not just the Supreme Court, the entire federal court system, because now you're going to see, we're going to have like another Lochner era. Lochner is uh, when it was an era where the Supreme Court ruled that employees have a right to contract with their employer, and whatever you agree to in that contract is gospel, and the federal government can't step in and say, whoa, 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 now, come on now. We need labor laws. We can't have you work in too many hours every week. That's insane. You're going to work yourself to death. We need labor laws. We need child labor laws. We need minimum wage law. There was a time when the Supreme Court said all that's unconstitutional. You have a right to contract with your employer. So, And always what would happen is the employer has all the power. They rig the contracts in their favor, make them incredibly biased against the workers, and the workers have no choice. And if you have a problem with it, they say, okay, leave, go find another job. But don't, apply, don't appeal to the better nature of your lawmakers to pass labor laws. Don't appeal to them to pass minimum wage laws or whatever. No, that's all unconstitutional. That's what the Supreme Court ruled for one era. And now we're slowly sliding back into that. And you have Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, and the right wing to thank, and a weak Democratic Party for not fighting back as well. Okay. Okay, let's do two more real quick, and then we'll call it a day. These ones won't be too long. Joe Biden is trying to capitalize on the U.K. election. Uh, Here's what he told a bunch of people at a private fundraiser that he did. Look what happens when the Labor Party moves so, so far to the left. It comes up with ideas that are not able to be contained within a rational basis quickly. I don't even really know exactly what that last sentence means. It's put together in, excuse me, in a very clunky way. Um, but yes, he's saying the Labor Party moved too far left and they're not rational, and that's why they lost. Well, um, you know, I got news for Joe Biden, who I'm sure is not following this stuff very closely. Really, the only major difference between 2017 and 2019, 2017 is when the Labor Party made historic gains, is that in 2019, um, Jeremy Corbyn sent massive mixed messages on Brexit. Before they said, hey, it is what it is, the people voted, we're going to have to be in favor of Brexit as a party. Um, And in 2019, they said, "Mm, let's have another referendum. He was trying to marry together uh, people who want to leave and remain, and it didn't work, and it imploded. That, plus a very hostile media, I think, did in Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party. Um, But notice, and guys, you're going to see this time and time again. 
they will dismiss all the evidence that doesn't prove their case, and they'll embrace the stuff that they think does prove their case. So did any of these people say in 2016 when Hillary lost to Trump, oh, my God, centrism is obviously not the way. It just lost. Did they say it when uh, Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama lost 1,000 seats in the midterm elections? No, they didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. If anything, their takeaway is, oh, oh, we weren't right-wing and corporate enough. Hillary wasn't right-wing and corporate enough. But they just keep their mouth shut. They won't say anything. But when it comes to the left suffering any defeat, doesn't matter what the reason is, they say, oh, it's because they're too far left and they're not rational. He's now at the Hillary phase of the election, which is like wagging your, his finger and warning. And it's like, well, you better pick me because um, I'm probably the most electable, I think. That's not an argument that anybody's ever going to win because it's lazy. You're not saying, hey, the reason to vote for me is my, here's my policy position on health care. Here's my policy position on taxes. Here's my policy position on foreign policy. No. He's saying, uh, look out. This is what happens when you move so, so far left. There are ideas that, you know, this isn't rational anymore. Give us an actual reason to vote for you, but he can't do it because there is no actual reason to vote for him. The only thing he has is the perception that he's more electable which, by the way, is the exact opposite of the truth. He's not more electable. I think he's one of the least electable on stage because he can barely string together a coherent sentence, and he has no ideology. So he's an empty corporate vessel, and I think Trump could beat up on him like there's no tomorrow. So, of course, leave it to Joe Biden, leave it to these centrists to um, try to capitalize on the U.K. election and uh, pretend like that means they're the answer. For the love of God, don't make the same mistake we made in 2016 by nominating a centrist. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But the entire Democratic establishment, the entire Democratic Party is moving in that direction. um, And the media is pushing in that direction too. And that's a shame because this concern trolling shows how hollow he really is and how he has no real message. So now all he's got is finger wagging and saying, you better do me or else. Inspiring, Joe. Very inspiring. Okay, now let's go to the final story of the day. There are many politicians in this 2020 Democratic primary who are embarrassing. They're just, they're making fools of themselves. And, you know, we could talk about them for a long time. John Delaney's a great example. I mean, good God, man. Do you really, why are you still in the race? You really think like somehow you're going to break out? Did you know John Delaney was the first one to announce he was running? He did it all the way back in, like, 2017 at some point. 2017. The election is 2020. And he's been running this whole time, and he's got nothing to show for it. And it's embarrassing. And his whole campaign is, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, we can't do that. Nobody likes him, but he's still running. It's just embarrassing. And there, there's many of these kinds of candidates. Now, we won't go into all of them, but the one that's the focus of this story 
is the guy who we call Surfer Bro Michael Bennett. Now, why do we call him Surfer Bro? It's because of, like, how he talks, bro. Every time he talks, you think he's going to be, like, <laughs> totally rad, bro, totally tubular, bro. Now, if you, don't, if you don't know where I'm getting that from, do yourself a favor, open up another tab, go to YouTube, type in Michael Bennett. You'll probably see other people named Michael Bennett who pop up before he does because he's just that irrelevant. But find a video of him, listen to him talk, and every time, bro, he sounds like I'm saying, I'm barely even exaggerating how he sounds, bro. Totally rad, bro. Totally tubular. <laughs> Go listen to him. He sounds exactly like that. But anyway, I digress. He's proving to be so inept. He might be more out of touch than John Delaney. Actually, I don't know about that. Maybe it's a tie because John Delaney was just the other day talking about, I'm the only Democratic candidate for the TPP. Aren't I so popular and intelligent? What are you doing? Nobody wants another trade deal that's going to outsource all of our jobs. What is wrong with you? Oh, so out of touch. So out of touch. But Michael Bennett may have one up that here. So this is what he tweeted the other day. I think kids should have to go to school six days a week. 181 days is not enough if you're a kid living in poverty in this country. If you're a kid living in poverty, they should have more time in school? Six out of seven days in the week? <laughs> As somebody said on Twitter, your real point is the poors shouldn't have weekends. That's what you're saying. Who, how on earth did you think that was a good thought? And why on earth would you say it and tweet it? That's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. Five out of seven days working and going to school is a lot. That's a lot for any human being to take. You think six out of seven days kids should be in school? Oh, I'd, I'd rather say four out of seven. I mean, I get five because you've got to match it up with the work week for obvious reasons, but, like, maybe the work week should be four days and kids should go to school for four days. Six out of seven days you want these poor kids in school? He's like saying, let's steal everybody's childhood. <laughs> let's steal everybody's childhood and make them obedient little worker bees to partially steal from the great George Carlin, the late great George Carlin. That's what you want. What I think everybody should do is like, shut up and fall in line, bro. You should like totally go to school six out of seven days because I think that's rad, bro. Totally Tubular, bruh. Rad, bruh. Oh, you're such a joke. Guys, of all the problems in the world, this is what he focused on. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, homeboy, homeboy, we're bombing eight different countries right now. We're, do, we're doing drone strikes everywhere, massacring civilians. We just droned a wedding the other day. Oh, I'm sorry. A woman leaving a hospital directly after giving birth. That just happened. You got anything to say on foreign policy? Got anything tubular to say about that, bro? You got anything to say about uh, getting everybody health care? You got anything to say about 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck? You got anything to say about the over $1 trillion in student loan debt, a thing that shouldn't even exist 
it shouldn't be a thing, anything at all? You got anything to say about our infrastructure getting a grade of D+, our country crumbling as we spend trillions in the Middle East? Anything to say about any of that? Bro, I think kids should be, like, forced to go to school six out of seven days of the week, bro. Red. Uh, Go back to your surfboard, man. This politics thing isn't for you. Why are you still running? You know, he tweeted the other day, like, here's what the polls were in 2004 at this point in the election. And John Kerry was way down at 4%, and Howard Dean was leading high up, like, 20-something percent or 30-something percent. And there were, like, five people before Kerry. And, like, the point he's trying to make is, like, John Kerry was really low in the polls, and then he became the nominee. And then what happened? He lost the general election. So are you telling us you're going to surge to win the nomination and then lose to Trump? Because that's the parallel if you want to be direct about it. But that's neither here nor there. Guys, 2004 was a different political time. The election didn't start 23 years before voting day in 2004. <laughs> like, right now is when the election started in 2004. The Democratic primary, like right now, it started at a normal time. Since with the Trump era, everybody hopped in early and wanted to get it, you know, out there early. But surfer bro Michael Bennett's trying. He really thinks he has a chance of winning. Oh my god! <laughs> How delusional! You're so delusional. He's delusional. John Delaney's delusional. So many of them are delusional, dude. Like I said, back to your surfboard. Totally tubular, rad. All right, we're done here. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.